Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. A few weeks back, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever announced the largest effort in our organization's history, the Call of the Uplands Campaign, an initiative to improve 9 million acres of habitat and raise a half a billion dollars to do that. Um, as we unveiled this campaign, uh, a lot of a lot of listeners will remember there was an episode of this podcast devoted exclusively to the campaign. All our social media, email blasts, the entire Pheasants Forever Journal and Quail Forever Journal uh, were both directed to, to this launch, uh, particularly uh, asking folks to, to screen the unveiling of a video for the, the Call of the Uplands public launch. And we also issued uh, media advisory and, and, and engaged all sorts of outlets, uh, newspapers, TV stations, radio stations, online platforms to help us bring the, our habitat message in this campaign to a broader audience. And one media outlet in particular stood out to us because it generated so many views of our video unveiling. And that outlet probably would surprise a lot of folks. Uh, the outlet was Gear Junkie. And the woman responsible for so much of our success for the, for the, um, for the launch of that campaign, Nicole Qualtieri, the hunt and fish editor of Gear Junkie, uh, is our featured guest today. She's a, uh, a relatively new bird hunter. She has a bird dog with an incredible name. And she is one of the most talented writers in the industry. And I'm thrilled to have Nicole join us uh, as our featured guest today. Joining me, um, you know him as our director of marketing. I know him as our resident in-house gear junkie. That's Andrew Vavra will uh, be riding shotgun with me today. Um, Andrew, how you doing? Doing quite well, Bob. How, how are things in your neck of the woods? <laughs> uh, in my neck of the woods, it is uh, doodle migration season. So, so my pups have been practicing a lot, thanks in large part to a mutual friend of mine, uh, of ours, John Zeman who's had uh, young Gitchy for a couple of weeks and uh, it's going to be a good hunting season this year. Yeah. That's, that's the segue I was looking for. You, you picked up on that. I, I want to hear about the, the adventures of Bob and your, your pack of GF. <laughs> um, I, I too have been out in the woods looking for timber doodles. I don't think I've had as much success as you. Um, sounds like you've been having a pretty good spring. Yeah, I would say that the, the woodcock migration is a little bit lighter than some years. It's been an earlier spring, so I think the, the birds have been spread out as they've been moving north. Uh, that said, I'm pretty consistently within the Twin Cities metro area can, can find a half a dozen in a half hour per dog. 
Um, so I'm running, running Gitchy for a half hour, then I'll swap out and, and run my, my veteran Esky. Uh, Tram, Tram gets the run, but she, uh, she can't really run a half hour, a heavy cover anymore, uh, which is okay. She's, she's 14 and she, she deserves a nice leisurely walk at this stage of her life. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been an early spring for, for us and, uh, I'm I'm really thrilled with the progression for for young Gitchy at a year and a half, um, and, and a lot of thanks to to my friend John Zeman because he's got Gitchy to a point where right now she's steady to to wing shot. Not that I'm shooting, but a blank and release. Um, so you know he's. He took her for about three weeks and was running her in the spring grouse woods. And um, he was running into multiple birds and Gitchy would be standing until he tapped her head and let her go. So, so now it's absolutely on me not to screw her up. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. The, the pressure is now squarely on you. you. You have a few months between now and September to not do anything that completely unravels Gitchy. So, <laughs> so good luck with that, Bob. Yeah, no pressure. I think our um, our Wednesday night training sessions are just around the corner with uh, public lands in the state of Minnesota and a lot of places around the country will be closing here on April 15th as nesting season gets underway. Uh, and I think that will usher in more formal training. Uh, so we can mark your calendars for, for that coming up quick. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I mean, this past fall, uh, Baxter, my French Brit and I, we took a huge step forward. It was just a lot of fun. Um, on our little doodle runs this spring, we struck out every time. But the interesting part is we had one pretty prolific, I'll call it a hike slash searching, searching session. And I don't know if he was just moving too fast or if he's what his deal was. He didn't find a single bird. But on that same walk, my 11 and a half year old yellow lab put up 11 grouse. Huh. So it's like the, the old girl still got it. Actually, <laughs> where are you at? Bud? <laughs> 11 grouse. And if I recall, that's a. That was a little bit of a unique, uh, unique part of the state. Yep, you and I may be located in Minnesota, which is a very grouse-heavy state. Um, where I was, I would not consider grouse territory, and mm. I was put on that spot squarely by my my trail-running wife, who claimed she had heard grouse drumming in that area before. I don't want to say I didn't believe her because she is smarter than me. But I, I walked into this situation with a little trepidation, and sure enough, she was beyond correct. And she knows it, and she let me know it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is why I like Allie so much. <laughs> she can do she can do things that uh, the rest of us never would dare. <laughs> she she puts me in my space. It's also in a good like, way. well, like slow and steady. You know, I see this a lot with older animals. And maybe even older people like, like slow and steady, not necessarily wins the race, but you tend to see a lot more. Mm. So I think there's a lot so, to be said for that. Nicole, is it, well, your, your pup is pretty young. Have you, is there a woodcock migration coming through Montana or have you been out spring dog training? You know, um, he's really little. He's 14 weeks, so he's like he's tiny. So um, my 
And I got a, I got him at um, the end of February. I picked him up in Tennessee and actually drove across the country with two puppies and dropped one off in um, Idaho. Um, I'll say this, two puppies were easier than one. Um, they did really well together. They were super easy. Um, and uh, my goal for him currently is for him to get the foundations and like the foundation of being a good citizen. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, it's still pretty cold in Montana. It snowed today. So like, so he's a little intolerant of the cold with his baby coat. So we can't spend <laughs> a ton of time outside unless we're like running and moving. But um, man, he knows a lot for a little guy. I, I'm clicker training, which is something I learned through horse training, which is a personal passion. Um, and he's really got a lot of the basics. He's got um, sit, place, kennel, down, sit up. So we do like push-ups, you know, lie down, sit up, lie down, sit up. Um, he'll, he'll give you both of his paws. He'll um, touch his nose to my finger if I ask him to touch. And right now we're working on weight. So he's up to about 15 to 20 seconds where he'll wait for my next command, which is either okay or Bob, his name. <laughs> so, um, and I'll tell you, he, he was named, he was, um, I'm sorry that he's not your namesake. He was named for my favorite singer songwriter, Robert Earl Keane. So his full name is Hunter's Rest, his kennel, Hunter's Rest, Bobbert Earl Keane. So it's a little bit of a different name. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty fun. I, have you been a Robert Earl Keane fan for your whole life or? Um, I got turned on to Robert Earl Keene in college. I went to Colorado State University um, and started off in equine science um, pre-veterinary <laughs> and did with a sociology criminal justice degree. So um, changed mm. things up a little bit, but um, I was really tied into, uh, I actually played college polo. So we had um, between like 32 and 40 horses at Colorado State that were owned by the club, the the polo club, and we had about 40 um, members in the university. We traveled a lot. We traveled um, all around the country hauling, 19-year-olds hauling 10-horse trailers from Fort Collins, Colorado to Dallas, Texas. Um, wow. We talk, a, we talk a lot about how we're really lucky that nothing bad ever happened, but, you know, we just, we had a great time, and uh, the soundtrack of, of a lot of that was just Texas country, and um, we had a lot of really strong friendships uh, along those um, teams that we played at Texas A&M and Texas Tech. And um, so we'd, we'd often go to like a Robert Rolkeen concert if he was in Dallas or um, that was really just sort of like the soundtrack of my college years. Yeah. That's awesome. I've, I've been to countless concerts of his. So I'm excited for concerts to happen again. And when I can see him live again, it would be great. Did you grow up? playing polo or how does one decide I'm going to play polo in college? I know it's super weird. No. Um, I, the only reason that I learned how to ride horses was I was like such a fanatic about it. Um, I come from like a working class background in Ohio and um, there was a local barn that would, that at the age of 12, I started mucking stalls for riding lessons. So my parents huh. bought me, one round of riding lessons, and I remember it was 120 bucks for eight lessons back then. So this would have been like the mid 90s. And um, I, 
from then on, my parents never paid for anything. I just worked for all of it. And um, yeah, I mean, they didn't pay for daycare because they dropped me off at the barn. I'd muck like 20 <laughs> stalls, feed horses, learn how to care for horses. And, um, you know, I'd ride for an hour. Like it, it that was really yeah. kind of my basis. So I guess, I guess it built a lot of perseverance <laughs> to me <laughs> from a young age, but um but yeah, I mean, I guess I've had a job since I was 12 years old. So it's it's interesting to sort of evolve in that landscape. But I so Polo, so um, ending up in Colorado, we moved there when I was in high school. It's sort of a long meandering story, but um, ended up in Colorado. I went to Colorado State for their equine program. And I met my best friend of almost 20 years and that first day in the dorms and she had grown up playing polo. Um, I actually played lacrosse my first year in college and she was like, you play sports and you ride horses, like come play polo. So um, <laughs> she's the, she's, um, I like to call her my elitist friend. Uh, she's, she's my 1%, my friend in the 1%. Um, and she, no, I'm just kidding, but um, she's amazing. And her and her husband run a horse training facility in Aiken, South Carolina. Um, and actually this is all connected back to Bob the bird dog. So we'll just take it on that train. <laughs> um, so she runs a training facility in Aiken, South Carolina. They train polo ponies full time. Um, and then our former polo coach in Texas, in Dallas, now lives in Tennessee and breeds Boykins full time. So she works with um, Nancy Boykin of the Boykin family and breeds to her studs. Um, wow. And so I reached out to her to, to, I guess it would have been two years ago, Christmas of 2019 and said, hey, I want to save up for a Boykin. I know they're expensive. Um, I wanted a versatile upland and duck dog because I had really fallen in love with bird hunting when I had done it, the few times that I'd done it. And I love working animals. Um, that's been a part of my DNA, I think, really from the beginning. So um, Boykin seemed like a good fit for me. And I talked to Sissy and um, she gifted me a puppy. So wow. um, yeah, so I mean, she's known me since I was 18 years old. So it's it's kind of a cool full circle thing. And then um, the right puppy came along and I, I picked him up in February. So um, yeah, my old polo coach breeds Boykins and it all gets connected back to hunting. And I think she was excited for the breed to get um, uh, maybe a little bit of coverage through what I do. And I'm, I'm sure that it will, you know, sure. so I, I'm super excited about learning this and doing something different. So you've known and you've worked with horses longer than you have with dogs. So w what would you say are the biggest comparisons and co contrasting traits to training a horse versus um, working with a, a young pup? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think what horses have taught me is that the timeline the timeline for us is much different than the timeline for them. And I think that has translated into my expectations for Bob in, in a really big way. Because, um, so I recently bought a six-year-old mare last fall um, who's done a lot, but she she has some holes in her foundation. So, um, you know, she couldn't stand still in the arena. She just wanted to go, go, go all the time. So it really took like 
a couple of months of effort just to get her to like take a deep breath and let go and just stand in the arena while other things were going on. So like I I would literally just spend hours like standing. Like this is what we're gonna do. You don't need to do anything else. Like there's nothing there's nothing beyond this for you to do if you just stand still, you know. So um and the way you accomplish that is working hard and then resting, right? So working hard, rest, working hard, rest. Like if you just rest, you don't have to work. So that's sort of like, that's like a baseline. Anyway, um, I can get really in the weeds with all this stuff. But with Bob, what I see with him is an animal that is very, very immature, right? Um, and I know it's funny to see you laugh whenever I say it. With Bob. <laughs> um, so, so with Bob, you know, I know he's immature. He's only capable of certain things right now. You know, like um, the gal that I really look to for guidance in the bird dog world is Lisa McDonald. And I'm not, I don't know if a lot of people follow her. They should. She's um, an incredible trainer and she breeds and works with Boykins and all sorts of dogs out of Georgia. And we just became friends um, through Instagram. But, um, you know, she she also encourages me to think above his level. You know, she's like, he can hunt this year as long as you put the foundational work in place. So I'm, I'm kind of tempering it. I think dogs learn a lot faster than horses, but their lifespans mm. are shorter, right? Like right. like a dog, a dog is here for, you know, 10 to 15 years if we're lucky. Um, I have a Border Collie, he's six years old. Um, Boykins and Border Collies have sort of the same age expectancy of like 12 to 16 years, as long as everything goes well. But like uh, my horse, I have a, actually a 29 year old mule who could potentially live for another 10 years. Um, <laughs> she's hilarious. Uh, you have a mule? Yeah, you have a mule? She, you have I do, a horse. Yeah. You have two dogs, and I've seen a cat behind you on screen. I what enjoy. <laughs> what else? <do> you have? <laughs> that's that's the moratorium. I'm at my limit right now. Unless I move to a house where I can get chickens, then I'm definitely getting chickens. Um, uh, so, I yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of animals. Um, my mule is interesting. She worked for the Forest Service for 21 years, and I. <laughs> retired her and adopted her last fall. She did 300 miles in the high Uinta wilderness last summer. It's just uh, the steadiest animal you've ever met in her life. Like, like she's just incredible. Um, she's gonna be doing the therapeutic riding that happens at the barn where I board my horses. Um, my five-year-old nephew rides her and she can still pack elk and do all that sort of stuff. So she's basically my backcountry buddy as my young horse learns how to also be a good citizen which like wow. which to me is the foundation for any good animal like they're a good citizen first then they learn the rest and like if the rest isn't perfect that's fine but like when they're in my house when they're around strangers when they're around children like they better be a good safe and loyal citizen you know so so yeah that's i guess that's where i start but that's that's personal, you know? I mean, a lot of hunting dog trainers would probably have different things to say about how they would train their dogs. But, um, you know, I'm just a citizen too. So that's where we start. Have you ever um, been horseback hunt, bird hunting? So been riding a horse with some pointers in front of you and, and combine the two? 
no, but that would be like an end goal with my animals, you know, like in a, in like four or five years when Bob is at his peak and my horse is in her prime, like it would be amazing to be able to go out and do that together. So, so yeah, I haven't had that experience, but it's certainly something that I'd love to do. Yeah, it's pretty fun. When you, when you, you, you giggle every time you say Bob and I'm giggling too, because <laughs> it is funny. And Andrew and I have hunted with, um, one of our coworkers used to have an English setter named Bob, and and he, he Matt Morlock, who who's been on the podcast with us before, he uh, he owned that setter in South Dakota, and every time he called that dog on a hunt, it's like Bob, I was like what? <laughs> it's like I'm talking to the dog. Pretty quick, you know. It's like damn it, Bob. It's like you talk it. You, you talking to the dog again? No, that time he was to talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> really, That's amazing. So, I'd love to hunt with you, but I think it'd be really confusing, Nicole. <laughs> okay, I'll teach him a different name, but only for when we hunt together. <laughs> right. You you could call one of us Robert. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, we could do it. <laughs> um, so you talked about growing up in Ohio, uh, going to Colorado State. Um, what's been your career path? How'd you end up at Gear Junkie? Oh my God. Uh, my career path is so weird. I have probably the weirdest, like most indirect career path to anything, but I'll say this. When I was a kid, my mom told me that I was going to be a writer. And I think that I just ignored her for most of my life. Um, hmm. and said, well, you know, I also had, I had a bad experience with, um, someone, when I was young that said that I shouldn't be a writer. And it it's always the negative things that stick, right? Mm -hmm. So so like when I was around 13 or 14, someone said, writers, you know, writers don't make any money. You're not good enough to be a writer. Like don't be a writer. Um, which was bullshit. Um, oh, I'm sorry, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, <laughs> you, you are. We're, I don't okay, think the okay, FCC cool. is monitoring us. All right, cool. Um, so you know, um uh Woeful is the person who stomps on any child's dreams in in my mind. Um, but but I think from then on I was like, well, what what should I do? And it it ended up being like a really meandering path. Um, so you know, in college I thought I was going to go to law school, and I graduated at two thousand eight, like right when the economy tanked. And I was watching my friends in law school who had zero job potential when they were about to graduate. Um, and it was going to be 50k a year and add like you know a mortgage basically of student loans over my head and so i was like okay well now i i'm not going to go to law school so what am i going to do so i entered into the americorps i did a year of um, volunteer service outside of boston where i worked at the therapeutic horseback riding center <clears throat> and then um when i was recruiting volunteers and i kind of figured out i was okay at at like the basics of sales. And so I ended up doing corporate sales in my 20s and um, worked in um, kind of a variety of, of uh, sectors doing sort of the same thing. I worked in um, printing, which is odd. Um, I worked in software startups um, and I, I ended my sales career in educational publishing. So um, by the time I turned 30, I'd done a lot of things. And I'd also moved to Montana for the job in educational publishing. They offered me Seattle or Bozeman. Um, I chose Bozeman. I was living in Denver at the time. So 
um, in 2012, I packed up and moved to Montana and I was like, um, surrounded by people who were living a life that they chose, you know, and I was really living a life that I had been, um, I'd been saying yes to opportunity, but it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to be doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, so I did what everyone else was doing and I quit my job and started bartending. Um, so, so essentially I went from being in corporate sales to starting over and, and that was really when oh. I started becoming an outdoors person. Um, I began hiking by myself. I began backpacking by myself and kind of slowly chipping away at all these things that, um, you know, the Montana landscape is very different than the Colorado landscape. Like the Colorado mountains are very in your face. And to me, um, I love to ski and do all of that stuff, but I didn't really have much interest in hiking or backpacking until I moved to Montana and was in this kind of wide open landscape that really had all these like mysteries written into it in a way. Um, you know, you can't get into the Absorca Beartooth wilderness from a spot that's necessarily like high alpine, you have to walk your way into it and then you're there. Um, and that, that was like, uh, that was really like, a, I guess like a spiritual moment of growth for me and a change. Ooh. So I said, okay, well, I want to work in the outdoor industry. Um, I sewed backpacks at mystery ranch, which is a, which was an interesting gig. Um, professional seamstress is not, uh, I don't think <laughs> what I was meant to be. Um, but, um, it was a great intro into this world. And then um, I I took some time off to go backpacking on the Continental Divide Trail. I did 150 miles solo um, in Montana and Wyoming and some small trips and um, really cut my teeth outside um, and had encounters with grizzlies and moose and everything you can imagine. I, I didn't have a dog at this time, so I was just out there on my own. Um, and then I came back and was looking for a job and um, on Craigslist, there was an ad for a social media manager for a hunting television show. And the television show was called Meat Eater. And I had no idea what that was. Um, so I went to the library. I was really, res I was hesitant to work on a hunting show because the idea of a hunting show to me was like the Sportsman Channel, Big Buck, you know, type of hunting show. And I had no interest in that. So I went to the library and, um, got some of Steven Ronella's books and then I sent in my resume and that was really where my hunting hunting life got kick-started. Um, I worked there from December 2014 to spring of 2017, um, worked for backcountry hunters and anglers for about a year, year and a half, um, then went into freelance work and got connected to Gear Junkie and I've been the hunt and fish editor for almost three years there. So it's a it's a seven year journey that really began a really long time ago. But yeah, that's a very meandering answer. So that's what you get when you ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's fascinating, though. Um, I, I want to ask about the kind of the hunting component specifically. Um, do you was there ever any like particular lack for lack of a better word trigger catalyst impetus that that made you say, I want to give this a try? Um, I think it actually came to me through backpacking and having a lot of experiment, experience, experiences with wild animals. Um, I had, I also would say that Montana kind of edges you towards this 
population and culture that hunting is very much a part of it. You know, it was like, suddenly it became normal in my life to be around guns. And it became normal in my life to be around food that my friends had procured on their own, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, I got to eat elk and pheasant and duck and moose and try all these different things that I hadn't really tried before. So um, I came into a culture that was very accepting of hunting and growing up in Ohio, there was whitetail, all my friends were whitetail hunters, you know? Um, so I wasn't averse to hunting. I would say I was fairly in that population of the 70% of people that are okay with people hunting for me. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, um, uh, there weren't any real barriers to it from an emotional standpoint. And then going out into the country on my own and really like seeing being quiet and being alone you just have so many more experiences with wildlife you know um i would say that if you're trying to avoid grizzlies it's probably the (laughs) not the way to do it um in grizzly country and i i had those experiences but um for the most part like it's benign you know like nothing bad Mm -hmm. happens and like you get to have great stories to tell but um yeah, there was one night in particular that I I um, was in the Beaverhead Deer Lodge National Forest on a 70-mile portion of my trip, and maybe I was, I think I was three nights in, two nights or three nights into the trip at this point, and I camped, like, at the top of this high valley, and, um, and I'd eaten my dinner, and I was kind of, like, I was maybe 100 yards away from my tent, and uh, dusk hit and an elk cow walks out like maybe 25 30 yards in front of me and slowly she was followed by over 100 elk like they're just Mm. surrounding like surrounding me and they're talking to each other and playing and i am completely invisible to them and there was like this moment of intuition almost where i was like wow like this is this is what hunters do you know what i mean they get to have like these experiences where they're like up close to something that is wild, you know, and, th- and that mm. to me was like r- as romantic as much as it was about knowledge, right? Like the mm-hmm. the knowledge to be in the right place at the right time is something that hunters have to develop over a lifetime. So I, I found that to be really curious. And from that point on, I was just sort of obsessed with the idea of figuring it out and I had no idea where to begin. And then serendipitously a Craigslist ad ends up in my lap and I end up working with Stephen Ranella and Giannis Patelis is sitting six feet away from me and um, I get like maybe (laughs) the best world-class education on hunting communication at the time you know so I um, it's hard because I like it's hard to tell that to people that are like well what do I do when I get into hunting and I'm like well I don't know I had like a really unique experience you know i so my first year hunting was 2015 and then um i killed my first deer in 2016 um and then working at gear junkie i've had the opportunity to go on hunts around the country and uh, and fish and you know fishing as well um and then uh i've killed my last three big game animals by myself packed them out on my own back processed them from start to finish and um, and when I was bird hunting, I actually had fun. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so hunting can also be fun. Um, <laughs> so like that was that was a big change for me. And and I fell in love with watching dogs work. Really, mm. like that was um, having 
Um, I went I went with um, an outfitter in Washington called Pluoff. I think it's Pluoff Outfitters. Um, and um, his lab brought me my first duck that I'd killed. And like watching that dog work was like immediately like a total joy. So, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, well, how can I replicate that joy for myself? The easiest way to do it is probably to get a bird dog. So I guess that's where, that's where Bob comes into the picture. Yeah. <laughs> you, you talk about, you know, answering that Craigslist ad. And at the time, uh, this is before Meat Eater was acquired and became a, a larger corporation, right? So what's it like yeah. in, in, in cube world, working in a cubicle <laughs> office setting with, with, a with a business that's sort of um, percolating towards a bigger um, a success story? Yeah, I, I can explain that. So um, when I, I didn't technically work for Meat Eater, I worked for 0.0 Productions. So 0.0 Productions was the um, original production company that started the show. And most people would be familiar with the ZPZ because they did all of Anthony Bourdain's shows. So mm -hmm. um, ZPZ was responsible for No Reservations, Parts Unknown, Mind of a Chef. They really had this focus on on food and then um, verite docu-series. So, you know, having a film crew that knows how to correctly move through a city or knows how to correctly shoot something that's gonna be fast and in real life. So like you had, so to me, the interesting thing about Meat Eater is, it, is in its history is that it was created with Steve as like a creative expert, but it was created by people that weren't hunters in any way, shape mm. or form. So like a lot of the people that shot for us had been like, um, had shot for Bourdain's shows or they'd shot like sports type stuff. And um, so they weren't gonna look at hunting from the same perspective that I think hunting had seen it traditionally. So um, that was really interesting. So, so when I was there, um, you know, Netflix picked us up while I was there. That was a really big change. Um, and really when I walked in, um, I think they just reached 100,000 fans on Facebook and their Instagram account had 10,000 followers. So I walked into an audience of 110,000 and for more than two years, uh, I worked my ass off and we had half a million um, wow. in our audience when I left. So. Um, of course, like some of that is like what I call the Steve effect, like anything he touches turns to gold in many ways. Um, and, and in my opinion, he's one of the best writers of our generation um, living today. So it's, it's interesting. Um, but when I was there, I was still cutting my teeth, you know, so like it, Ooh. it's a, it's really like, um, and Steve and Katie and I, Katie is Steve's wife who works there. Like we still talk. And so it's really fun to kind of be on this evolution of like, of what it means to continue growing and to see where mediator has gone from, you know, the production company to the brand. Um, and yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, if I recall correctly, the, the show was called the, a wild, the wild within right before it became a, leader yeah the travel channel version show. yeah that was okay. a that was a totally separate show so actually like the initial show that Bourdain did was called a chef's table um mm. and it was sort of the same thing it was like this beginning of the evolution onto something bigger and better um but yeah so it did start out as the wild within that was a separate show i'm not sure you can watch it anywhere 
Um, but then I think it was like 2011 that Meat Eater had its first season, but gotcha. I wouldn't, 2011 or 2012, yeah. So so let's talk about you as a writer, because you, you mentioned, uh, you know, that through your, your childhood or formative years, people would talk to you about, or I think you maybe even said your mom, right? That yeah, you're going to end yeah. up a, as a writer and you had all these different paths. And, you know, if folks that are listening, the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience, you know, maybe they haven't even heard of Gear Junkie before. And you initially, you hear Gear Junkie and you think, oh, it's going to be product review after product review after product review. But that would be incredibly underestimating the quality of content that that's on the Gear Junkie uh, platform, and your your writing in particular is incredibly more diverse than products. Tell me about the development of your voice as a writer, coming from somebody that wasn't classically trained necessarily to be a writer. And, and has evolved into being, you know, arguably one of the, the greatest voices in, in the outdoors right now for, um, for, for hunting, fishing, and conservation. First of all, that's like a really humbling thing to hear, so thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I still think of myself as a beginner in so many aspects, you know. And I, um, yeah, how do, how do I, my writing journey you know, I've I've freelance written really since I got out of college. Um, I just never stopped writing. Um, my first writing gig actually was I was the Denver Comedy Examiner, and it was a free gig where I wrote about stand-up comedy, and then I I ended up doing stand-up comedy because of it. So I when I was in Denver, like that was really. <laughs> You know, in Montana, I'm a hunter and an outdoors woman. When I was in Denver, I was a stand-up comedian. Um, which is what I job I, haven't you done? Bartender. I, I, I I feel like there's something like old school in my like professional life, and I, I'm a nomad. You know. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess um, writing is something that I enjoy. It's like one of the few things I think that I'm good at, um, and I like I love to read, you know. And I think if you read a lot, like you're you're inclined to write. Um, and I don't I don't think I ever. I just never stopped writing, you know. I I started writing, I think when I was four four years old. You know, I was already reading. I was reading chapter books by the time I was in like first grade. You know, I just loved to read and I loved to write. Um, so maybe in some of us, it's just innate. You know, I think we all have our gifts. Like that's mm -hmm. the one that I was really given. Um, and I would say that my sociology, my liberal arts soci sociology degree helped me have an outsider lens, if that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, it taught me to look at society um not as myself but as an observer and i think that was really a gift in my writing um and it still allows me to kind of be an outsider in the hunting industry Is that okay so going back to gear junkie um writing for gear junkie is really interesting because a lot of what we do is seo focused it is a gear review it's a gear it's also like gear recommendations right like i would guess that the majority of your listeners 
have typed in best running shoes and come across a gear junkie article without even registering that it's gear junkie. Like, like I would say that that's the bread and butter of what we do. We, we have about like between 1.7 million and 2 million hits a month. And a lot of that is from SEO. So I would say that I balance, I balance my occasional, very occasional provocative <laughs> essays with um, a lot of SEO informed writing about gear. But the other side of that is that technical writing can just make you a better writer. Like you have to focus more on brevity. You have to understand how to use um, sentence structure to work within the internet. Like there, there are all these like different areas of expertise that I've kind of like, like, like jiggled along the way and like figured out like, okay, this is how this works for me. Um, and I would say that I don't really have any like gatekeepers where I work. You know, like um, mm. I think a lot of other hunting publications uh, have, uh, I don't want this to come off the wrong way. They have hunting heritage over their heads and they feel accountable to an audience that cares a lot about hunting heritage to not push against that narrative and potentially lose members of their audience. Like Gear Junkie doesn't have anything hanging over its head. Like we're a gear website, you know, like, mm. Who cares? Who cares if I write about hunting? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, like at the end of the day, I have like the freedom to do it because like there isn't anything at stake. You know, like um, mm -hmm. ninety-eight percent of the articles that I write are about gear and are about like outfitting people for different pursuits. And um, then that other two percent, I actually get some like time to be creative and thoughtful. And um, interestingly enough, it's it's the 2% that I think gets the most um, air within the industry, right? Or like within the hunting yep. community. Um, but people have probably gone to my articles before and not had any emotional reaction to them whatsoever other than, oh, that sounds like a good pair of gloves, mm. you know? Well, so I, I, I just... I, go ahead, Andrew. Well, I was just gonna say, you. You touched on a lot of, I think, really important things there in a short amount of time in terms of uh, the, the magic sauce that kind of makes gear junkies hunting and fishing uh, editorial stuff really click because um, the foundation is completely different. You know, on your website, you know, you it attracts the powder hounds, but now it also, um, you know, it's a place for the actual bird hounds, too. And it's the, the culmination of outdoor rec and the hook and bullet, you know, crowd, for lack of a better term, coming together. And that's a really powerful thing. And it's something that, quite frankly, needs to happen more often. But I don't know if that will happen from just the status quo um, voices, if you will. So your own perspective coming from a place of loving landscapes and loving experiences and interacting with wildlife and then becoming a hunter. I mean, that script is flipped. For most of us, I mean, you talk yeah. to, to Bob the human and 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 myself here, <laughs> and you know we we started hunting right you know as, as youngsters, and we used hunting as the vessel to allow us a deeper appreciation of these landscapes and the outdoors. Whereas if you come at it from a completely different different aspect, you're not beholden to some of like what you mentioned these, these hunting heritage. Um, you know, mind frames that you don't even realize subconsciously you're just kind of sometimes stuck in. 
So your ability to call a spade a spade while going through this journey from a very authentic voice is something that that I certainly appreciate. And it's a, it's been a pretty unique uh, perspective that you've been bringing to, you know, I'll say our audience broadly because it touches so many. Um, but I'm, a, I'm absolutely loving uh, kind of watching your journey come, come to fruition as now you're in Montana with, you know, a pack mule, a horse that can also pack stuff <laughs> out and a bird dog. It's like, come on, she's, she's just getting into hunting and she's like, she's hitting all of this. It's like, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> Wait, um, I will also say that I sort of think of myself as like an agnostic monastic. Like I live by myself. I don't have a family. I have like, I have zero responsibilities like other than my animals. You know what I mean? Like I have the time to invest. In, I have the time to invest. In, and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just like, this is where my life has led me. And um, I'm really grateful for it. Like I, I experienced like, I just turned 37 on Monday. And like, I feel like I'm just at the beginning of something, you know, uh, mm. it's fun to, it's fun to like be in a beginning. Okay. So like the Buddhists have this concept called the beginner's mind or the learner's mind. You might've heard of it. So like the, the idea is that for me, the way that I interpret it is like, if I can look at the world with like the excitement of a kid who's like learning to play soccer for the first time and that's what they've been wanting to do for like, you know, since they were four years old. Now they're finally five and they get to go out on the field and play soccer. You know, like that's how I look at hunting. Like, like there's nothing about it that isn't curious to me. You know, like when people do a grip and grin, like, I will say that initially I was like, oh, that's so gross, you know, but now I'm like, now I'm just curious. I'm like, how did you, how did you end up killing that mule deer? You know what I mean? Like, it just gives me all these questions about like, like where, where we're heading. Right. So like I have been hunting, this will be my seventh year hunting. And like, I would really love to fill my elk tag for the first time this year. You know, like I, it's something that I really want to do, but I am also really a DIY hunter in many ways who's a beginner and constantly figuring things out. And I fall on my face like more, you know, in 2020, I didn't kill a single animal. So like, it's really interesting to kind of look at this trajectory and say, okay, well, what can I learn and focus on this year that will help me next year, that will help me in five years, that will help me in 10 years. Like, like hunting is, um, hunting isn't competitive for me, I guess. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, I'd rather be the learner. And like, there are so many people in this industry and this practice to learn from. And I feel the same way with training a bird dog. Like, I'm certainly not going to do it alone. You know, just because I'm doing it myself doesn't mean that I'm not going to bring in trainers or go to clinics or have a lesson. You know, I do the same thing with my horse every week, you know. Um, Actually, I have a lesson in an hour. <laughs> um, so, so like I'll, you know, I'll get off this call, go and like saddle up my horse and um, join in on a lesson that is shaping us both for the better. So, um, I think there's something to be said about like being able to be okay with not being an expert, you know. And I think that whenever I write, maybe what makes it unique is that we're used to giving experts the mic but we're not used to giving a beginner the mic. And I'll tell you that like, I've been trolled and I've been, I've had messages sent to me. Um, I've been like 
brought up on people's pages and they've said, this person doesn't have enough honey experience to be an editor. And like, maybe mm. there's some merit to that. But I would say that there's also something to learn um, from the people who are going through the process, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll give a good example. So when I, when I shot my first year, I thought he was dead and I walked up to him and nobody had told me to like poke him or like poke, somebody told me to poke him in the eye after it, but like, you know, throw something at him, just like make sure that he's dead. Right. So when I walked up to my deer, I actually ended up, he was in shock. He was in like a really intense state of shock and I had hit him in the high shoulder. Um, I hadn't hit him. I was really nervous. I'm a beginner, right? Like you can't Mm. be perfect your first time. And I'd practice, I'd done everything, but you can't know what's going to happen until you pull the trigger. So I I end up injuring this deer. And of all these hunters that I'd been around, nobody had told me what to do when I walked up to a deer. And and that's like something that I wouldn't have just thought of myself, right? But afterwards, people are like, oh yeah, you need to do that. And I'm like, okay, well, I didn't know to do that. So like, so like you end up learning about these things that I think are so ingrained in a lot of hunters because they haven't they've either experienced it by like watching their mom or dad do it when they walk up to a deer, right? Maybe no one ever expressly told them to do it. So like after the fact, you get all this information that you're like, oh, well, I now I know that when I'm talking to new hunters, say, hey, like make sure your deer is dead <laughs> before you mm. walk up to it, right? So so um, it's really, that was one of, it's one of those things that came across as like really concrete after the fact, but maybe it was something that no one was going to tell me until it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, that may, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of value to bring that perspective. The, the other thing, when I think about you as a writer, and it, I think it's relatively new, is the, the email newsletter that you've started to send out. Oh, yeah. Right? Isn't it? Isn't that's like yeah. three three months old or something? Or is it? I don't, Not I think even. The three I, yeah. issues, right? I started it in March, um, and actually, I don't know. Are you? Do you know Wes Seiler of Outside Magazine? Outside, you, sure. Yeah, so he's a great writer and um, a great friend of mine, and he was like, "Hey, you should start a newsletter on Substack." And everyone at work was like, you shouldn't start a newsletter. You're going to get in trouble. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start a newsletter. Um, so, <laughs> so essentially, um, essentially it's just like a place for me to like stretch my legs and like have fun and, and to write about um, whatever's going on that week. So, um, you know, I think you read my piece that I wrote about birds, right? So like, mm-hmm. uh, I guess if we go back to the, to um, the call of the uplands and the yep. article that ended up, I'm really glad to hear that it drove so much traffic to you guys, but um, birds have been a part of my life, you know, since I was a little kid, like um, running around. Uh, I actually grew up on a Christian commune on like a giant farm in Ohio. And um, yeah, I know it just get I just get weirder. It's fine. Like sometimes I say it and it doesn't sound true, but it is true. And, um, you know, like we were like a pack of little kids with BB guns and we, I, so I guess I did start bird hunting at a young age, but probably not legally. Um, I guess the statute of limitations is off by this point, but anyway, so we go around and we, yeah, 
yeah, I'm guessing. So, so, you know, I was very, I was a feral child um, in the midst of a lot of children and, you know, I would capture baby robins and then raise them in our shed. You know, I would do terrible things like that. So, mm. um, but I mean, it was fun, right? Like I, I loved it. My parents were like, like super open about whatever I wanted to do outside and there were horses and sheep. And that was really where I got like a lot of my love for animals both domesticated and wild. And, um, and so when I saw the call of the Uplands campaign, actually my editorial director, Sean McCoy is a lifelong bird hunter, um, deer hunter from Wisconsin. Um, and I call him, what do I call him? He's like the unknown badass. Like he's like, like he blows campaigns out of the water. Like he's just like unbelievable. He will like run a hundred K one day. Then the next day he'll do like a 30 mile upland hunt with his GSP. And then the next day he's like out archery hunting elk, like seven miles back in the Colorado mountains. And like, he's, he's just like, and he's like professional level skier. I can't say enough good things about him. Um, and really he's been like a mentor through, for me and been the person who's like, hell yeah, like write that article, get it out there, you know? So um, he was like, hey, Pheasants Forever, Forever is doing something, you should watch it. But it was like 5.30 and I was like, ah, I just want to be done with work, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I very reluctantly tuned in and I was like, oh, this is amazing, you know, like this is what hunters should be doing, like we should be restoring habitat. Um, I had also just come back from my trip out east where I spent a month in South Carolina and Florida. And and I was like thinking a lot about birds, <laughs> um, you know, like seeing blackbirds and songbirds and seeing cardinals again, um, you know, like we don't have cardinals out here. If we do, it's really rare. So like mm. cardinals, are a cardinals are like a bird of my youth, you know? And then I was thinking, well, where are the quail? You know, and then I started reading a little bit about the quail and I never saw one. You know, so then I'm like, OK, there's been an 83 percent decline in northern bobwhite quail. Like, mm. what are we doing? What are we doing wrong? How is this possible? You know, and um, so then, you you know, I, I am an, a journalist by nature, just curious. And so I keep digging and I'm like three billion birds, three billion breeding age birds, most of them common birds that we're used to seeing just gone off the landscape, right? So like, yes, it affects upland birds. Um, it affects our grassland birds. It affects boreal forest birds, right? So then then I'm like sitting here like, well, well, what do we do about this? You know, like, like stewing, right? And then Call of the Uplands sort of catches me in this moment of like thinking about birds. You know, I actually remember reaching out to Sean and being like, what the F is going on with birds right now? Like, this is so awful. And um, then Call of the Uplands came about and I'm like, okay, this is how we can talk about birds and like frame it for the gear junkie audience. And, and really like, uh, I do feel like a, a serious uh, uh, internal devastation about mm. what's going on in our, our, our culture of biodiversity, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think like, uh, like I said, I'm a voracious reader and um, reading about the loss of insects is actually tied to the loss of birds and, and all these things that go together. And I find it really, I, I guess like really 
it all sort of stemmed off each other. Um, going out east, understanding more about the quail, like reading about Call of the Uplands, writing about it, and then like seeing the sort of concerted effort within the hunting community to really dive into the fear of hunters declining. Mm -hmm. When I'm like, wait a second, hunters, even if we have a few million hunters on the landscape, like hunters are not going away anytime soon. But like what is potentially going away are our native grasses and our native plants and our native birds and our native fauna. And to me, like you can't have hunters on the landscape you can't have recreators on the landscape. You can't have anyone on the landscape if you don't have a landscape first, right? Like at the end of the day, like I will set down, you know, and I've, I've said this to other hunters, I will set down my bow, I will set down my shotgun and I'll set down my rifle if it means that I'm gonna be able to do more for habitat. Like that's an extreme view, but I think it's because it's an extreme problem. Like. I, I think that when you see Pheasants and Quail Forever and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the National Wild Turkey Foundation, like building habitat, it's habitat that's good for everyone. You know, it's it's not habitat that's just good for turkey or quail. Like it's restoring the soul of our landscape. <laughs> and the, like, to me, that's like a much bigger issue than recruiting a new hunter. And so like, I, I think a lot of people really misunderstood. I wrote an article called The Hunter Decline Myth. And um, and if you'd like to read it, I mean, basically I just summed up what it is. It's an argument for habitat. And um, I kind of criticized the R3 community a little bit in it, but I also felt that it was deserved in my experience with the R3 community in the way that I felt like I had been treated by certain people in that community um, and seeing how they were sort of approaching it, which I felt like was flawed. So like, I'm gonna speak up with a criticism if I have it. It doesn't mean that I'm against hunter recruitment, right? So the long and short of the story is <laughs> we need more habitat. Habitat is really disappearing. Like how do, what do we do as hunters? And like, how do we make this a problem for everyone that like we can all get in on it, right? Um, I think I lost my train of thought a little bit there, but well, that's that's um, where. Okay, okay, you, I'll say that. I, I was going to say like, that. yeah, go for it. I'll say this really quickly. <laughs> oh yeah, so I received a few people that wanted to write rebuttals on Gear Junkie, um, and their rebuttals. The idea for their rebuttals was why we need hunter recruitment, and I was like, no, like if you're going to write a rebuttal to my article, it needs to be why we don't need habitat. Like, like that needs to, why we need hunters more than habitat. Because my argument wasn't, we don't need hunter recruitment. My argument is we need more habitat. We need it now. So I, I find it really interesting that I think in an age where people will skim an article or not read the full thing that like, even when we do a short argument, um, it's so easy to get hung up on the spots where the echo chamber isn't necessarily echoed. You know mm. what I mean? So anyway, as you, that's what I was going to. Obviously, I've, I read the article you're talking about, the, the hunter decline myth, and I saw the uh, a lot of the comments that followed. Um, and some of it was just pure trolling, right? Um, but 
as you think about it now, after, you know, taking in some of the, the rebuttals, is there anything you would rephrase or, or change in the article you wrote, um, you know, a couple weeks out, I guess it's probably, yeah, it'd be about a month afterwards now. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, everything can be rewritten and rewritten better at all times. I knew what I was putting out was going to be a bit of a powder keg, but I also knew that it was the best that I had for that moment. I think that if I could go back and rewrite it, I would be like, um, why are we so scared of losing the boomer generation? <laughs> um, I think that like that's the argument that people really like get stuck on is like, well, we're about to have a 30% decline. Well, that decline hasn't happened yet. And what if that means that hunting is simply going to become more diverse, have different perspectives and have new traditions. You know, like I, I don't think, I think that the, the connection to the old guard is often like the connections to our fathers and our grandfathers and all the amazing things that we've been able to learn and glean from them. And I, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing for hunting to change as long as there's room for everyone at the table. So like, I, I guess what I want people to think about is that um, like, it's okay for people to hunt the way that they hunt, you know, like, even if it's different from the way that you hunt, right? Like, I think that like, we have a lot of ethical things to think about. And those are certainly conversations to have. There might be certain ways of hunting that might not qualify as fair chase, right? And that's something that the hunting community at large needs to decide. So I, but as long as it's legal, like I understand that there are going to be a lot of different ways that people hunt. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, yes, I would certainly go back and rewrite some of it, but um, probably not to the tune of what people would want to see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, and I don't want to alienate anyone. I'm not pointing fingers and saying that like people are doing the wrong thing. I just think that like the more we can develop a critical lens, right. I'll say this, I don't always agree with everything that I write, but sometimes I'm doing it to make a point. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like I think that sometimes it takes a little bit of devil's advocacy in order for us to, to sharpen our own arguments, right? It's like the idea of iron sharpening iron. If somebody comes back to me with a rebuttal that's really good, then I'll say, okay, like, let's publish it. But if someone comes to me with a rebuttal that doesn't completely understand, uh, you know, the initial hypothesis, then, um, you know, that's not that's not worth my time. I don't know. That sounds harsh, but I, I think, think it's true. like some yeah. of what people tend to get hung up on, especially in this day and age, is we kind of live in a it's this or that type of a society um, versus you know when Bob and I first. Uh, read that article, I don't want to speak for Bob, but I wasn't offended in any way by someone who works for an organization that, you know, values R3 and, and introducing new people to the outdoors and increasing the number of people who hunt. I, I just saw the value in habitat as well. It, it, for me, it was a this and that. It's like, I, and I just felt like your unique perspective again, coming at this from almost like a landscape level and being very in tune with what the broader general public view, like how they view hunters and the importance of uh, hunters having a, a, a good representation in their eyes and how and the value in that. I just felt you were putting one in front of the other a little bit. I never, I never read it as being, 
it's this or that. I like, okay, that's your opinion that you have to have habitat because wildlife needs habitat. We need resources, right? We need clean water. We need, you know, to sequester more carbon. We need all of this. And then like you get to hunt in that area too. So um, to your earlier point about sometimes the hunting yeah, community yeah. is a bit ingrained in kind of traditional like thought process for a lot of us. And I'm guilty of this too, is we view hunter numbers as being directly in line with, you know, dollars being raised at a federal and state level to do more habitat work. So it's almost like the, the chicken or egg scenario, depending on how you were raised and how you entered this space. And I just felt that you were coming at it from a different area, but we all want the same thing. We want, we want healthier resources. We want more wildlife. We want more yeah. access. We want more opportunities. And with that, more people will be, will be interested in it because nobody wants to show up everywhere they go mm -hmm. and not have an access to hunt, right? Because like, that's not how you recruit hunters. That's not how you get people interested in it. You need these landscapes. Um, so luckily, that's why like, I'm proud to work for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever because we're the habitat organization, but education and outreach is in our mission too. So it's like, yeah, we're, we're here to do it all. <laughs> and so that's just kind of like our unique take on it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is so powerful. Right. I think, I think where a lot of, I think where a lot of us in the hunting world miss the point is that, um, I don't necessarily think that we need to recruit hunters to recruit hunting advocates. And I think that that's a really big, I think there's something really different about those approaches, you know? And I, um, I would say that when I was working at Meat Eater, you know, Steve would write for like the New Yorker and the New York Times, and he was really a front facing voice in the public for hunting, right? And then we go on Netflix and he becomes even more front facing in the public for hunting. And the way that I watched him navigate those territories was really interesting because he is really able to like maintain a, a neutral stance while having a lot of opinions. And in many ways, like I, I hope to do that too. I think here's what, here's what I think it comes down to is if we invest these educational resources and giving voters and the public a better understanding of what hunting means for people, whether it's the connection to food or the connection to landscape, or whether it's understanding, you know, most people don't, most people don't even understand that like you need a hunting permit to go hunting, mm. you know, like, like they don't have that education. You know, when they think of like someone killing an elk, they don't know that it's illegal to leave the meat in the field. There are like all these like really basic things that as hunters, it's sort of like my example earlier, like, like, even all of these experienced hunters that I was around didn't know me, didn't remember to tell me to poke the deer, right? Like, like we need to really go back to basics in our education with sharing hunting with people and like how hunting is connected to our human heritage, right? Like, like there wouldn't be 8 billion people on the planet if we weren't good hunters. <laughs> so like, so, I mean, there's also a big difference with, wiping 60 million bison off the landscape at the turn of the 19th century and what hunting is now, right? So like, we've come a really long way in a short period of time. Like when people say hunting is conservation, my response is hunting regulations are conservation. 
<laughs> like mm. the way that we regulate hunting is actually how we conserve our resources, right? And so like the funds from hunting certainly go back into conservation. Um, excise taxes, right, on hunting and fishing gear, those go back into conservation. But these should also serve as models for the way that we're looking to fund conservation in the future. Like there are a lot of people on the landscape you know, we hear about dwindling like rural communities. There are actually more people living in rural America than have ever lived in rural America. So like, it's just that our populations are concentrated in urban centers. So how do we figure out ways to connect those urban centers financially to the land around them? There's a lot of ways to do it. Like the old model doesn't necessarily need to be the only model, you know? Like one of my colleagues um, wrote an article about having a backpack tax which I think would be really fair. <laughs> like mm. I've seen the damage the backpackers do to the landscape in, in heavily trafficked areas in Montana and Colorado. Like I've seen what anglers do to the landscape. Like we have a long way to go in, in figuring out how to like talk to the recreation community about what it means to be a conservationist. They might see themselves as an environmentalist, but until they pick up their trash or bury their poop, like they're certainly not a conservationist in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that certainly brings it down to the ground level. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you know, I I appreciate you bringing the conversation to a new audience. Um, I, you know, I I do think, as Andrew mentioned, there's a lot more ands in this conversation than there are ors. Um, I think at the pinnacle of concern is what you pointed towards, which is habitat. And, and I would agree with that. That's that's a healthy world in every sense of our existence, from water quality to soil, to wildlife diversity, to human happiness. I think, you know, the whole web of life starts with habitat. So I, I would agree that like the number one takeaway that I got out of kind of your sequence articles was you're bringing the habitat issue to the masses. So from that perspective, I would absolutely right on. Um, I do think that there's more to the R3 story. There are more, there are more ands. It, it at the pinnacle is habitat and recruiting people. And I think you're right. Recruiting people that are, empathetic, sympathetic, and embraceful to hunting is more important than just creating hunters. I think creating hunters is important, but, you know, we always talk about, we'd rather have people that understand hunting and how it relates to that decision pyramid, a habitat. So they vote in support of what, what we do as a hunting community that benefits the population at large and for you to write these stories um, from a unique perspective on, an, on a website like Gear Junkie, it brings the conversation to an audience that, that wouldn't get it otherwise. It wouldn't be, and it makes me think of my absolute favorite story of yours um, is from the fall of 2020. And this is, uh, early on, I asked you about your your voice. So, <laughs> and I asked you about your newsletter because I think 
your newsletter, if folks aren't signed up for your newsletter, you got you to gotta sign up to Nicole's newsletter because I think your voice is even sharper in your newsletter than it is on Gear Junkie. And here's my perception of your voice. <laughs> and you can tell me if you did agree or disagree. And, but I, I learned something today that really explains it to me, and that's the stand-up comedian part. So my perception of your voice is a uh, strong, confident woman. Uh, like, Almost, I am woman, hear me roar. But but you always have a self-deprecating sense of humor that just every time I read something from you, it just makes me grin. I mean, like I, I get something really, really valuable and intellectual from a woman's perspective. And then it makes me smile on a human level because you you have that um, that stand up. I don't take myself very seriously. Right, right. You don't. On, on yeah. any of this stuff, <laughs> you, you 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 do. You bring it down to a level, and and that's where. Okay, so I, I mentioned November twenty two article, an open letter of solidarity to a nine thousand year old hunter, is my favorite story from you. So paint the picture of this story because you want to talk about R3, Nicole. This is the ultimate R3 story uh, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> so so yeah, tell, me, yeah. tell me about this story. Yeah. Um, okay. So I drew an antelope tag last year and um, I had never filled an antelope tag before and Antelope are hard to hunt. They're, they're, um, I drew it in Eastern Montana. And, um, and I was, I will put it lately, I was getting my ass handed to me by the situations at hand. So um, I was pretty upset about everything. I was doing, I was hunting by myself, um, which I do a lot. And I've been hunting myself for a couple of days at this point. And um, I was sometimes like, I'll just take a break and like, read and see what's going on. And I came across, an, I think it was a New York Times article about the discovery of this 9,000 year old hunter in the, um, I think it's in the Peruvian Andes. Yeah. And the story itself was really interesting because I think it showed a lot of preconceived notions about who a hunter is. Um, essentially it was like a group of researchers that were at this archeological dig and they're unearthing a skeleton and they're like, wow, this must have been a really great hunter, probably a chief. Um, they were referring to the skeleton as a man um, and like had noticed that I think I think that the skeleton was buried with like more than 20 different items that were related to like the hunting communities of the time. Um, and one of the researchers said, hey, you know, uh, this is a pretty slight skeleton like i think this skeleton might be female and so the the researchers did dna testing and sure enough um the it the skeleton belonged to a 19 year old female that was a part of this hunter gatherer society high in the andes um i believe that the animal they hunt is called vicuña i don't know if i'm saying that correctly but it's essentially like a like a llama hmm. um deer type animal so um 
it spurred the researchers to essentially say, well, we haven't DNA tested all these other archaeological digs. And I think there were like around 120 skeletons from a similar time period. So they go back and they DNA test all of these skeletons and they find that about 30% of those um, skeletons that were buried in this um, you know, supposed hunting tradition, right? We can't, we can't completely understand what was happening, but um, we're female. So I'm out there um, getting my ass handed to me by antelope, pronghorn, sorry. Um, the, and pronghorn are interesting because they're the last of their Linnaean family, right? So if you're familiar with pronghorn, you'll know that they're really a living relic from the Pleistocene era. Um, in many ways, actually, Homo sapiens are a living relic from the Pleistocene era. Um, I think there were five other humans within our Linnaean family. We're the only ones left. So like the pronghorn, I'm a relic of the Pleistocene on an eastern Montana landscape. And I'm thinking about this woman who hunted 9,000 years ago in the Peruvian Andes. So. Um, you can already see that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on um, and connection. So, so really like, I was so moved by that in a way. Mm. I kind of, it was almost like, um, like all the cultural and societal things and being trolled or whatever for being a woman in this industry or feeling like an outsider was like, well, we've been doing this a long time too, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So, um, and, and the interesting thing is that it doesn't necessarily go back to gender. Um, I think like we're seeing a lot of gender fluidity in our culture right now that um, changes a lot of narratives for a lot of people in ways that are often uncomfortable, right? So um, it's interesting to look back at this 9,000 year old woman and just think of my connection to her across all of these landscapes and timescapes and um, what was life like for her and how did she die? Did she hunt alone? Was she always hunting with her tribe? Was like, like I hunt alone, but I also, um, you know, speaking of hunter recruitment, I've run a woman's deer camp um, since 2018, where I've had between 18 and 25 women come to camp in Montana and hunt together. Um, and just sort of like an open call for women, like come hunt. And um, we couldn't do it last year because of COVID. But essentially, like, uh, like my community is mostly made up of, of women. My hunting partners are mostly women. So, so I have, like, a really unique experience. And I guess, like, that it was sort of this open letter of solidarity and that, uh, like, thank you for – I'm so glad that this hunter was found because it, it just gave me a different sense of, like, being on the landscape. Um, it's kind of like an ancient connection across a lot of different things. I, I, I mean, I clearly I loved that story. I loved your the letter creative... is better than the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you had such a creative take on it, and it was an illustration of um, we we continue to need more people like you at the forefront of hunting. And I'm glad I'm thrilled as hell you got a bird dog. Probably should have got a short hair. But I'm glad you got a bird dog um, and that you'll be writing more and more about bird hunting and bird dogs and, you know, taking unique per a unique perspective um, on, you know, you, the gravity that you clearly 
feel for the loss of habitat. Um, and, and even, I mean, you're, you're, you are the embodiment of um, recruiting more women hunters. Um, and, and I think that your voice is needed and, you know, I, I love reading it every time, whether your newsletter comes out or a new gear junkie story gets posted. So, so keep on doing it. Don't get down by the trolls. Um, I, I, I know you got a, you got a horse training <laughs> uh, <laughs> lesson here shortly. So we're going to, we're going to go to kind of the, the final component, which is um, the fun piece of the conversation, really. That's, that's gear. And, you know, we have our own resident gear junkie. He doesn't have a column in on your website yet. Um, but Andrew is, is gear nuts. So I wanted him to be a part, part of the conversation. But when you look out towards, you know, autumn 2021, um, what do you see on the horizon for the bird hunting community that we should be paying attention to? Um, I think we talked about this a little before the podcast, but I will say that I have been unable to attend trade shows because they have not existed, uh, in the past year. So usually I have like a much better view of what the landscape is, but, um, I will say that, uh, the continuing trend, and this is probably a little pigeonholed, so I'm sorry, you guys, but, um, the continuing trend for more women's gear that's like specific for women is really cool. Um, hmm. You know, Proas has had like a really nice upland pant for women. Orvis does a really great job in continuing to not only double down on equity in the hunting and sporting and fishing space, but to provide clothes for clothes and gear for everyone in it. Um, I've been really excited to watch the new brand Ball and Buck um, start coming out with some new gear. They're definitely like a high end, more like a Filson type brand, but. Mm -hmm. Um, they're doing like some really cool synthetic shirts and different stuff that's really aimed at um, upland hunting. Um, I had the, I know that this is like a little upland focus, but um, I got to test like a lot of the Sika waterfowl gear that, and it mm. was so awesome that they created for women. And um, yeah, and I guess there are like, there's some cool shotguns coming out. Um, I, I think Mossberg has a new over under that like I would love to try and like that in um, like looking at shotguns I, I'm always looking for things that are like affordable because I mean I'm still a writer so you know yeah. I'm not buying a $5,000 shotgun but you know Browning came out with I think it's called the Maxis 2 which looks like it's going to be a nice gun. Um, usually I get a chance to shoot a lot of guns at SHOT Show. Um, unfortunately I haven't done that this year but yeah, hopefully I'll get to shoot a lot of guns this summer and, and get back to you guys on what I like. So Proas, um, from a pants perspective, always sort of percolates to the top for w when I talk to, to women bird hunters. I know Andrew's wife, Allie, has a pair of Proas uh, upland pants. Um, Orvis um, for shirts and, and hunting jackets. Um, I know my wife has has both. Um what about from a boots perspective? What's a what's the women's hunting boot that that you wear? Um, you know, Lacrosse has been doing a nice job about starting to make um, Lacrosse and Danner, which are basically the same company. Um, they did an Upland boot that was really like affordable and light and nice 
couple of years ago. The name is going to ex escape me. Um, I think it was called the Wayfarer or something along those lines. But they're also making a boot called Lacrosse makes a boot called the Windrose that comes in a couple of different insulated options. Um, and so if you're a hunter that upland hunts in cold weather, um, I would recommend going with the insulated lacrosse boots. They're super burly. Um, they're really warm and they're not, you know, going to kill your wallet. Um, mm. I will say that like probably my favorite piece of gear that like translates from Upland to everything else that I do is uh, the Filson field coat. Um, and it's like literally indestructible. Um, I don't usually tell people to spend a lot of money on gear, but I would say that that coat is worth it. And if you wait for the Filson sales, sometimes you can get it at a really great price. Um, but it has like, like I can wear it to the barn and the horses, you know, can cover me in dirt and, beat the crap out of it and it like looks brand new the next day so like basically like that i would also say that carhartt is probably one that most people wouldn't think of um but like on an affordable level like their gear can cover so much of what we do outside mm. um so and then another one i would say is dovetail um dovetail is making workwear for women out of portland and um i'm sure that i'll end up wearing their pants most of the season, um, they're double walled, flexible, um, super comfortable for long walks and um, rides and whatever else you do. Yeah. I guess I had more to talk about than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> As we uh, wrap up and let you uh, get to your, to your horse lesson and, and feed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine feeding all these animals takes multiple hours too you've got two dogs a cat a mule a horse there's there's chores <laughs> to do for for nicole uh any closing thoughts to leave the the pheasants forever and quail forever audience with nicole you know i i am just um i'm constantly floored by like the amount of work that your grassroots volunteers do for habitat it's incredible um i think that you guys have done 15 million acres of restoration already and to think of another nine million I mean these aren't small numbers um I think anyone who contributes to your organization should give themselves a pat on the back for like doing something that's not only good for the birds that they love but for the entire ecosystem so like I think I I guess if there's one thing I want to leave people with it's like don't forget to celebrate the small wins hmm. you know if you clean up a patch of land by your house like you are part of the bigger effort to make the world a better place. And so like, yeah, don't forget to celebrate. Like, I think we have a lot to do together, um, but you know, there are so many success stories in wildlife as there are, you know, the stories that are potentially devastating and we're at a time where we can fix a lot of that. So um, I don't know, I'm, ho I'm hopeful for the future. As, as much as I am devastated by the current state of a lot of things, I'm really hopeful for the future and and I'm happy to celebrate alongside people as they continue to do good work. We got 9 million acres in our crosshairs and it's uh, we're on our way. Right. And uh, thanks yeah. for, for spreading awesome. that word. Um, I, I want to point our listeners to gear junkie. That's G E A R J U N K I E.com. And you can search Nicole Qualtieri. And it's just like it's it uh, sounds. Uh, Q yeah, U yeah. 
Q U A L T I A I R I. Did I get it right? No, I screwed up. <laughs> okay, here's what you do. Just go to Gear Junkie Hunt Fish. You'll be able to find me there. Um, and then my newsletter is called This Week Outside on Substack.com. So if you search This Week Outside on Substack.com, you'll find my newsletter. Um, and if you go to Gear Junkie Hunt Fish, you'll find all the wonderful things that um, my contributors write about, uh, my coworkers write about, and that I write about. So, um, and if you want to find me on Instagram, I, if you type in NKQ, I'll probably be the first person that comes up. So, um, <laughs> I'm happy to answer questions, help people find gear, um, and to take constructive criticism from from anyone who has it. Uh, you know, I'm certainly the first one to give it to myself. So. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, like I, you know, I just want, I want the best thing for our community. So whatever that is, like, I'm happy to work towards it. Andrew, you, you are um, always notorious for having the sharpest closing comment on any meeting we're on. So put a bow on this one for me. You know, in, in terms of being optimistic for this fall and all the good things that our organization is working towards, um, a lot of that celebration happens at field. And I'm looking forward to celebrating with both of you, Bob and Bob DeBoykin, together at some point this fall. <laughs> Put it on the calendar. Let's make it happen. I want to confuse Bob St. Pierre by yelling his name in the field. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. We have to. It's a day. Damn it, Bob. <laughs> uh, that's, like my, that's my whole life right now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for giving us so much time. And, and again, thanks for, for spreading the word of Habitat and our organization's uh, campaign to the masses. It really, really helps a lot. So good to hear. And honestly, like, I, I really am humbled by a lot of the things that you said. And, um, yeah, I'm just excited to be able to work with you guys and, you know, hopefully make hunting and Habitat a better place for everyone. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hunting with Bob too. <laughs> All right. I'll let him know. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this fun episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Yes, follow even Bob. Something good will happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening.